Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. As soon as I sit down to change the front tire, he runs over the back of my foot, broke a little bone inside my foot. He didn't really mean to hit me. He was just trying to brush me back, you know, slow the stop down a little bit. He said, this is David at so-and-so. said they've got the bed and... Mr. Wingo in jail said they want you to come. <laughs> but I, I never had a problem with Dale. I just think he wrecked people when there was no use in it, and I told him that one time. He said, well, that's the fun part. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track and a good, good group of people who really do care about NASCAR history. And Steve, we are recording this on Monday, November the 1st. Do you know what incredibly momentous event took place 27 years ago today. Well, I'm going to guess here, Rick. Was that the first day you were on the job at scene? That was my very first day on the job at Winston Cup scene. A red letter day. And 27 years ago today, you could not have wiped the grin off of my face (laughs) 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 with nothing. Now, I do have a little bit of a story to tell about this. 
everybody that listens to this podcast more than likely knows that I was married once before Janie. And one of the things that my ex-wife once told me in one of our more loving moments <laughs> was that I would never be good enough to write for Winston Cup Sink. Right? Oh my, that, that's cruel. Oh, well, all I know is this. My first day on the job at Winston Cup scene, I signed her up for a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. And I think you told me this story once, didn't your son marvel at your company car with all the logos on it? Right? Yes, he did. That was a story in and of itself. But yeah, 27 years ago today, November the 1st, 1994, was my first day on the job at Winston Cup scene. Went to the race in Atlanta a couple of weeks later and was on the road for the next 10 years. So, yeah, that was a big, big day. Well, Rick, I'm certainly glad as you still think that was a great big day for you because to be honest with you, Rick, <laughs> it wasn't a bad day for us at scene either. You were a welcome compatriot. No, that's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more either. <laughs> How painful was that, Steve? <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the second of what is going to be three installments of the roundtable discussion that we had with Phil Thomas, Donnie Wingo, and Harold Stott from Budmore Engineering. And this week, Steve, we talk about a little bit of everything. We talk about Everything from Dale Earnhardt's tenure with Bud Moore to Jeff Bodine's consecutive wins for the team at Martinsville and North Wilkesboro in the fall of 1992. And then they tell a story or two on each other. Oh, that's going to be good. <laughs> yes, sir. So that was great. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the October 24th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup scene. That featured coverage of Davy Allison's win at Rockingham and also Budmore Engineering's triumph in that weekend's pit crew race. And to a person, they all said that that was probably one of the most memorable moments of their career with Budmore. I'm sure it was. Back at that time, Budmore's team obviously was a good one. But as we have said on this show, it wasn't a glamorous team by any means. It was just a hard-working blue-collar team, and it was really good for them to win that pit crew competition. Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Nathaniel Thomas and J.C. Morning, and also increased support from Ricky Boyd. And I have to share this story about some PayPal help that we got from a huge friend of the podcast, Jamie Bishop. Jamie, huh? Yeah, you're right. He's a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, last week, and you and I have talked about this, but Jeannie and I made a little road trip down to Bartow, Florida, so I could sit down in person with Rick Wilson. And Zoom interviews are great, but there is nothing quite like sitting down in front of somebody and having an actual conversation. Yeah, I agree 100%. The interaction is terrific. So Jeannie is retired now. And so here we go down to Florida. We left Tuesday, interviewed Rick on Wednesday, drove back to St. Augustine and came the rest of the way on Thursday and drove basically all 500 miles that we drove that day in a hard rain. I had to slow things up. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time we got back home to Yakinville, I was worn out, but Jamie Bishop, Jamie had texted me about something completely different on Monday. And as always, we kind of go back and forth for nearly an hour. And I mentioned that Jeannie and I were on our way to Florida to interview Rick. And the next thing that I know, he did ask me for our PayPal address. He said that he was going to send us something to help with the trip. Again, I mean, we had it covered. We were good to go. We were going to go do it anyway. But I told him that and he said, send me the dang information. <laughs> <laughs> and i did text him and say that if he really listened to our show <laughs> he'd know our paypal address by heart because i beg for money every dang week yeah, that's a fact <laughs> <laughs> and steve jamie actually sent enough to cover our hotel for both nights that we were gone how about that way to go jamie and i can't even tell you 
what that meant to me because we've received support from so many different people over the years in so many different ways. And it is truly humbling. And, and Jamie, especially that was not the first time that Jamie has helped us out. He actually helped us purchase the video camera for our YouTube channel. Wow. Really? So Jamie, yeah, Jamie is a big supporter of ours and I can't tell him how much I appreciate that. Once again, way to go, Jamie. So if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. You can also support us by dropping us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you catch us on. The Patreon address is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast, Jamie Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) Paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owners of the same brand. The 1978 Daytona 500, I would imagine that would have to be at the top of your list or or close to the top of your list of most memorable races. I would have to say it is, but when Dale Hart won the race in Talladega for us, that was was thrilling too. That was thrilling, I was talking. What do you remember about that day? We jumped up and down mostly. But anyway, uh, Dale had run good all day long. And he kept telling Bud on, he'd run second, third, and he'd lead a while and then drop back. He'd, he'd tell Bud, don't worry, I got it handled. Just don't, don't, don't get hollered on the radio. We don't, something don't happen, we're going to win this race. Yeah. And sure enough, he did. And then after the race, Bobby took me and Doug Williams up in the, we had to walk up in the big tire and be, be right with Bobby when he'd done the interview, yeah. up in the tire. So it was, it, I was involved in a lot of big races. What would you say would be your most memorable race, Phil? Well, I'd, I'd say my most memorable was uh, Trevor Bain winning Daytona 500. I mean, they have to be. When you think... Now, that you actually worked? Well, I was driving Donna's mother home at the time, working for the Wood Brothers. Okay. All right. So we've been together a long time. All of us have, really. Awesome. Awesome. Good deal. Donnie, how about you? Mine, I guess it would probably be, there's a couple. There's about three. Winning back-to-back at... uh, on Mondays at Martinville and Wilkesboro. Yeah, that made me right there. You know, yeah. they were both of them ran out races with Jeff. With Jeff. Yeah. And the one at Wilkesboro was just pretty much dominating. I don't think, I think we let every lap except during green flag exchanges. Wasn't I think that caution that was, free? Pretty much. I think it was I caution like 20 laps in. Okay. Uh, yeah. And the only thing Jeff said on the radio all day was that uh, last lap coming off turn two, he said, uh, we're second place. Second place was just going into turn three. So he's, you know, almost a full lap ahead. I think Mark ran second. That was a good day. That was that was two good weeks back to back, same car. That'd probably have to be mine too, come to think about it, because that was a, <clears throat> the Holly Farms four hundred and to win the Holly Farms four hundred race at Wilkesboro, you know, was pretty yeah. special to me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that was that was good times. It was. That, that was, it that was, was really good times. And and it, at Martinsville, Rusty was running second. And I changed front tires. Harold changed the rear. And you know how Rusty was on pit road. It, and some of these guys back then, if they're running second and you're pitting right behind them, they're not going to give you a lot of room. <laughs> so as soon as I sit down to change the front tire, he runs over my foot. The back of my foot broke the little bone inside of my foot. Rusty so, did? Rusty did. He didn't really mean to hit me. He yeah. was just trying to brush me back, you know, slow stop down a little bit because we were leading. He was running second. So I think we wound up only putting two tires on it because of that. 
So still got back out in the lead, still won the race, but one of them deals. So I, I basically went to Wilkesboro, changed tires with a bone broken inside of my foot. So I changed tires the next week also. But yeah, but probably and winning the pit crew race. That was in ninety one. Yeah. That meant more to bed than anything. That meant yeah, he had been he, he wouldn't get in it much. Y'all didn't get in it every year, did you? Not every Before year, me. but we did a we did three or four times. But uh, <clears throat> we didn't with the crowd, I mean at the time that would have been ninety one, so I was thirty one. And most of these guys here were in their was over the hill again. <laughs> <laughs> Mid fifties, low fifties. I, wow. I, I was yeah. about thirty then. You would, <laughs> you'd have been about fifty-two. I think it was fifty-four or fifty-four. So yeah, that, that was that was pretty. And that's hey, the, fifty-four ain't that old. <laughs> but but that was probably the first time that I ever seen Bud get emotional. He was very emotional yeah. when we won that thing. I mean, he. That was something he really cherished a lot. For the pit crew race? Oh, yeah. Why Why was that? He just, you know, because at the time we were pretty darn good. You know what? And and, we, and he kind of made fun of the other guys because they all brought different cars. And we just basically rolled the car out of the garage and took it down, did our pit stop, and won it. And, and actually broke the record that year. We so, beat it over just a little bit over two And seconds. we never practiced. The whole time I was there, we never practiced pit stops, as far as I can remember, hardly. No. I don't think we ever practiced. Somebody asked Bud Moore one day, said, did your boys practice during the week? He he said, no, on on race day, about 20 times every every race. (laughs) Yeah, because Bud always, it didn't make no difference what was going on, it was four tires, (laughs) no matter what. It made no difference. But probably the the best experience was – going to eat breakfast with him. He would come in, and just like Harold said or Phil said, he'd come in about 8 or about eight o'clock, 15 minutes after 8, and he'd say, come on, boy. I said, where are we going? We're going to eat breakfast. I said, I got work to do. I got stuff. He said, it'll be here when you get back. So I'd get in the truck. We'd go up to McDowell's, and there would be Pearson, Cotton Owens, and Jack Smith. So for a kid that was – Steve. 28 to 30 years old. Steve Eaton, probably. You know, that was that was, that was was a pretty good experience. And I would do that, you know, a couple times a week, you know. So I cherish that a lot. Now, it sounds to me like you you were the, the, the full-time guy. Yep. And as the team progressed and then as the team started to go away, you took Phil with you. And then you took Harold with you. Mm-hmm. Why Phil? Phil was a good gas man. <laughs> He's probably one of the best. He'd never spill a drop. And we and we were just good friends. And, and Travis came down and worked with us some. So, I mean, we all went to Travis's and we were all just good friends. And we stayed together. I mean, all the way through until uh, I left Travis's, yeah. I guess. You know, so. Yeah, he was good, and he was good. So we would try to keep the best people we could keep. And the other guys, they pretty much were set. They pretty much quit after that. You know, some of the other pit crew guys, Danny and Ray. Ray. And, and Charlie and Billy had to Charlie play. and Billy. And, you know, we've lost a few, too. Raymond Kelly. Raymond passed away uh, last year. See, know, when, uh, <clears throat> when bed went out. The Wood Brothers called, and I went to work for them a couple of years. Yeah. <clears throat> and he then, stepped out on me for a while. And then I started, Travis wanted me to drive his motorhome. He got a, he, he bought a motorhome at Dan Marino had ordered, and uh, he wanted me to drive it. So I started driving it, and uh, after a couple of years, I said, well, if I'm going to drive his motorhome, I might as well work for him. You remember? Yep. So I went with Travis then. No problem with the Wood Brothers. I thought the world of them, too. Everybody I worked for, I like, so wasn't no, wasn't no problems. Well, Donnie, let me ask you this question: What's your best Phil Thomas story? <laughs> oh, they've been slower. Tell me about time at uh, Watkins Glen when your daddy got put in jail. <laughs> no, that was this enough. <laughs> there ain't nothing dirty about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> So it was one of them deals. We were leaving Sonoma. It's the first time my dad ever been out to California anywhere. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, they come up with a joke that they had gotten stopped. But well, I don't remember who was driving. Well, I was riding with you. I know that, but I don't remember who was driving the other car. But anyway, and Ray and your daddy. Yeah, and I daddy mean, was yeah. in the car with them. So somehow about, they got stopped by the police or well, whatever. Well, it was, it was bumper to bumper. Yeah. And Bud, he didn't have no patience. He couldn't stand it, so they made a U-do in front of the traffic, oncoming traffic. Stop traffic both ways. Where they could get turned around and went the other way, and the cops saw them. That's when he, when he stopped them. Oh, yeah. But anyway, we get back to the hotel, and I'm on the phone. I'm doing something, laughing about it, and this, that, and the other. And Phil comes in there. He said, I ain't believing he's sitting up there laughing. And his daddy's sitting up there in jail. <laughs> Danny, Danny Fowler called me. Danny Fowler come up with that. Danny is our jack man. He called me and the son bitch could change his voice. <laughs> and I didn't know it was him. He said, this is David so-and-so. <laughs> said, they've got uh, Red and Mr. Wingo in jail. Said, they want you to come <laughs> bail them out. <laughs> bail them out. Why you do that? I, I went straight to <laughs> I went to straight to Don, and he's standing there laughing tears about running his eyes. And I said, I can't believe you're laughing like that, your daddy and Jake. <laughs> but there's been so many things like oh, that. Well. Probably, probably one of the other good ones was, is my, like I said, my wife came a lot. So we're at Wilkesboro, and she rode up with Harold. So they get there, and Harold gets the key to Phil's room. So they go in the room. And they take all his clothes out of the drawer and throw them all over the bed and just, just you know, just tear the room up. Well, they're in the, in the bathroom behind the shower curtain. So Phil comes in, and uh, he has everybody on the team in there looking. They're calling 911, calling the police. <laughs> Somebody's broke in his room. And they're in there behind the shower, but the shower curtain just dying laughing. <laughs> That's strawberry. <laughs> that was strawberry. Yeah. Yeah. Strawberry and Kim. <laughs> There's more than that, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they scared snakes, right? Both of them. Terrified. No. Of oh, yeah. Yes. No. Terrified. I mean, they, people, Henry Benfield used to wear them out with snakes. I've seen Charlie, the other guy that used to come with Phil, we were at Rockingham, and Henry backed him in the corner of the old, I guess it was where the driver's lounge used to be, right there in, yeah. in the middle there behind the garage. And it had one of those half blocks on it. With a, with a, you know, like a master lock. So Charlie runs against that door and knocks it, pulls it completely off out of the hinges, out the back door he went. So they were constantly chasing him around the garage. With That's snakes. what he done. That's what Earnhardt done that time. Earnhardt, we had, we belonged to a hunt club in Virginia and Cumberland, Virginia. And Earnhardt came in 1980 or 81. 81, 82. Went with, came with me and Harold. And uh, we were sitting there playing cards, and he pulled a rubber snake out, and Charlie ran through the screen door. <laughs> but there's been a lot of, and that's another thing that we did a lot of was card playing. There was a lot of card playing going on yeah. every weekend. Who was every. the best card player? Bill was pretty good. Ray Harris was pretty good, too. Yeah, he was tough. But that, that, that was probably one of the, I guess I hadn't been there long. It rained out Watkins Glen. So they're going to have a big card game on Sunday night. And uh, I probably had maybe $200 in my pocket, $250 in my pocket at the most. So I get in this card game, and we get started, and Earnhardt shows up. He decides he's going to play cards with us. Is this, while, is this before, during, or after he drove for you? That was after. Okay. This was after. Okay. Yeah, it was after. He, I mean, he stayed friends with everybody. Yeah. I mean, I got to know him pretty good. But anyway, he always liked to play three-card guts. I think that's what it was. Uh-huh. Something we never did play. We didn't play it much. But anyway, I, I get in, and we get around and get around. The pot's built up. You know, if, if nobody can call or whatever, basically you ante up again, right? Uh-huh. And then the pot builds up. So the pot's up to about... Four four hundred fifty dollars. Now, if you lose, you got to match the pot. So it gets down, and I had—I think I had like three tens or something like that. And everybody gets out, so I call. Earnhardt raises, and I call, and finally I looked at Harold and I said, "Look, I said I can't cover that pot." He said, "If you think you got a good enough hand," he said, "I'll back you up." 
<laughs> so anyway, I won the hand. That's probably the most scariest I've ever been at the racetrack in my life. Was going head to head the poker game with Earnhardt and beat him. <laughs> we was playing cards at Darlington one time, and uh, they, they, uh, what's the champion man Earl Parker? He played with us. Yeah, Earl Barney Parker. Hall played with us. Yeah. We, we used, we, you know, we just had a regular game, have something to do, and somebody knocked on the door. We was playing in our room, and. Uh, I went to the door and looked, and there was two girls standing there. And I, I never opened the door. I said, there's two girls standing out here. Carol said, bring them in. <laughs> so I opened the door, and Henry Benfield had a string of firecrackers about that long. He threw the firecrackers, and every one of them went off. <laughs> I mean, you ain't never. He cleaned us out, did he? You ain't, you ain't never seen since jumping and bouncing around. I mean, Henry didn't do anything. I talked to him about a month ago. He had changed a bit. No. He said he's going to send Harold a package. <laughs> Phil called and told me he's going to send me a box. And I said, well, I'll send it straight to you. <laughs> I, I talked to Henry probably about a month ago, and he said, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll be glad to do your show, but I want to bring a cake. Yeah. <laughs> you I said, I've heard it. about your cakes. Yeah, yeah. I don't want none of your cake. <laughs> you don't want none of his lemonade either. <laughs> None of his lemonade at all. It's talking about Dale Earnhardt when he drove for us. And he went deer hunting with me in the field. You knew to go on Earnhardt, did you? Yeah. He'd go hunt with us. But I'd go home with him and spend the night. And then that's when he started going deer hunting with us some. Then me and Dale become great friends, and they will forget it. When Bud gave up his number 15, we was walking out of the dark, and Dale caught me and put his arm around me, and he said, you're not mad at me, are you? I said, why would I be mad at you? He said, I got Bud's number. I said, that wasn't my number. That was Bud Moore's number. If he let you have it, that's, I have no problem with that. So I, I was good friends with Dale. I've been a lot of nights with him. I want to get back to that. So you told your best Phil Thomas story. What's your best Harold Stott story. <laughs> tell that. I got plenty of tape in my in my recorder. Yeah, some of them. <laughs> you better shut it up. <laughs> some of them stories I can't. Uh, <laughs> we better leave them. Let them hey, look, play. it's just between us and a few thousand listeners. <laughs> yeah, but my wife might see. That. <laughs> Sweating a little bit there, are you? Just put it this way: I wasn't a good boy. <laughs> That's okay. the best way I know how to put it. All right, okay, all right. Well, let me let me ask this then, Phil. What's your best Donnie Wingo story? I don't really, I don't know. I'd have to think about that a while. They ain't got no, you ain't got no stories on me. Not Donnie Wingo, right off the bat. What's your best Harold Stott story? I can tell you. <laughs> Boy, that didn't take. <laughs> well, Harold, let me ask you, what's your best Donnie Wingo story? Well, the best thing is, is we've been friends. When he come to work for Bud, we was friends, and we've stayed friends over the years, no matter Nothing never come between us. I started I started coming to see Harold and when I was working at Jimmy Means he did our transmissions. Yeah. So that was about nineteen eighty two or three. So we've been close. We talk every week or every other week. All of us do. You know. All the time. But I used to do a lot of gears for the race teams. Done the third members and transmissions. I'd, I'd done a lot of them. I'd go on sometime, come on from rain, there'd be 15 years sitting on my carport. <laughs> done a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, True uh, Chief from Greenville. What was it? One that had the race team in Greenville. Uh, Reynolds. Larry McReynolds. He brought me over all of his gears. I'd done all of his gears. Larry who? Larry McReynolds. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a good story on Harold, a good one. I, I got a pretty good one on him. I wasn't there, but I've heard it from Danny and Ray so much. He he just bought him a brand-new pair of boots. Oh, yeah, you can tell that. <laughs> <laughs> he just bought him a brand-new pair of boots. 
And back then we stayed at the American Motor Lodge. American Motor Lodge in Riverside. In Riverside. So the Cask and Cleaver, which was a good place to eat, they had been across the street. So I think they'd stayed over a little bit too long and he had partaken of a little bit too much. So they just proceeded to one get on one side and one get on the other side to take him back to the room. So he's got these brand new cowboy boots on. So they they pretty much just drag him all the way across the street to American Motor Lodge, brand new pair of boots, and they wear the toes out of his boots dragging him across the street <laughs> to the American Motor Lodge. I heard Danny and Ray tell that story. Yeah, it was a true story. Brand new pair of boots drug the toes out of him. I got home, I Barbara asked me, said, what happened to your boots? I said, we went, got in the golf carts, and I was dragging my feet over the ground. <laughs> <laughs> You've all mentioned Dell Earnhardt. You worked with him. You worked with him. Did you? I you? didn't work with him. Okay. Uh, but I interviewed with him. Okay. I, I didn't really work back with him when he, Back when he started his race time. <clears throat> He'd asked me about coming to work over there. All right. I was there, Sam, but I wasn't working then. So you started in 1980. Mm-hmm. How how long did you stay with the team, or were you working with somebody else at that time? No, I stayed with the team until I, until I was there. Yeah, you worked with Earnhardt then. Well, I was there, but I wasn't doing that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was just, I was just hanging on. Okay. I, uh, went, I went to some races, but I didn't go to all of them. Okay. All right. All right. And tell me about working with Dale Earnhardt. He had won the championship in eighty but had everything kind of fall apart in 81 and came to Bud's in 82 and 83. What was he like during those years? He was one of them to work for. He would, he never give us no problem, never did complain about nothing. He said he just complained about motors, and I don't blame him for that. He was the best out there even then. Yeah, yeah. he was good. Yeah. Uh, but I, I never had a, Problem with Dale. Uh, I just think he wrecked people when there was no use in it, and I told him that one time. He said, well, that's, I, that's the fun part. <laughs> that's exactly what he told me. I said, but you're good enough that you don't have to do that, Dale. What was his reaction? Smile at you. No, he, he, there was nothing wrong with Dale. I, I talked well on him. Steve, this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. The nature of the beast when you do a roundtable discussion like this, the discussion certainly doesn't go in chronological order like most of the interviews that we do. So I think it would be easier to follow if we do break it down in order. So here we go. There are a couple of things about the early years of Dale Earnhardt's career that I think seems so crazy given how synonymous he became with driving the number three Chevrolet. When Rod Osterlin sold his team to J.D. Stacy, it didn't take long for Dale to decide that he was going to be leaving the team. And we've discussed that before on the show. But when he did leave J.D., there was a lot of talk about whether or not he could take his car number with him. Could he continue driving the two car? He won the championship in the two car. He won rookie of the year in the two car. And so he should be able to take that number with him. The number ultimately stayed with JD. And after Dale spent the last half of the 1981 season with Richard Childress, he moved over to Bud Moore's team where he drove a Ford. After drove a Ford, Steve. Did you hear that? I heard it. I heard it. (laughs) I'm not too sure he's very happy about that. If you really want to blow somebody's mind, Consider Dell Earnhardt driving the rest of his career and winning all those races and all of those championships in the number two or even number 15 forward. Well, it fairly boggles the mind to think about it that way. I mean, he, <laughs> he was associated with the number three in all those glory years, and it's hard to ignore that. The number three Chevrolet, Wrangler, and GM Goodwrench. I mean, those are just. Yeah. Icons. I mean, yeah. Uh, to me, those are second only to STP in the yeah. 43 car. Steve, you were there and yeah. you knew Dale. 
What do you remember about his years with Bud? To be honest with you, Rick, I don't think he was totally happy. He didn't mind driving or working with Bud more, but he was not crazy about a Ford at all. I mean, he told me several times that he just was not comfortable racing a Ford. I'm sure that had something to do with the seasons he had with Bud, especially when, and we've talked about this, especially when those Fords had a lot of engine problems during the time that Dale was driving the car. And given that, and the fact that he probably didn't really want to be there, those were not the happiest years for Dale. Well, a couple of things about that that kind of piqued my interest are the fact that when I did the Dell versus Daytona book, I did talk to Greg Moore, and Greg did talk about the time that Dell spent with his dad's team. And the side of the story that I got from Greg was that they simply could not figure out how to make an engine stand up to Dell Earnhardt's right foot. <laughs> <laughs> that was a problem. <laughs> And there's something else to remember here. Adele told me also more than once that he had a somewhat working agreement with Richard Childress that if he could ever come back and provide Dale with the kind of equipment he needed to win, they would rejoin. And that is what happened. The legend has always been that Dale was always a Chevy guy at heart. I don't know that to be the case at all. I didn't know him that well, but early in his career, he drove basically anything that he could. Of course. His first career race for Ed and degree was in a Dodge and he drove a Ford for Will Cronkrot and he drove Chevrolets, Buicks, Oldsmobiles and Pontiacs for Rod Osterland. And so the question that I have is, was he actually a Chevy guy or was that maybe something that developed over time with a few contracts under his belt and a few dollars in his pocket? Well, he was actually a Chevy guy. Was he, he really? Had, yeah, but he had to drive what he had to drive to further his career. You're exactly right. Once he got stabilized and had some control and had some influence, that is when he decided that if he could drive a Chevrolet from there on out, that is exactly what he's going to do. And he got that opportunity when Richard Childress came back to him and said, okay, I'm ready for you. Now let's get back together. And that is exactly how it turned out. Donnie Wingo mentioned Jeff Bodine's wins in consecutive races at Martinsville and North Wilkesboro in the fall of 1992. And when he started talking about those two races in particular, Steve, I nearly curled up into the fetal position <laughs> and started sucking my thumb <laughs> because those were the first two races that I covered after moving to North Carolina for good. I slept in my car at Martinsville. I snuck food out of the press box and ran out of gas that weekend and then went to North Wilkesboro with the same game plan, except for maybe running out of gas. <laughs> I was going to sleep in my car and stick food out of the press box. But I found out when I got to the racetrack on Friday, that food wasn't served in the press box until Sunday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yeah, when he mentioned those two races in particular, I kind of had to keep myself from developing this really bad facial tick. <laughs> well, Rick, how did you survive? I mean, particularly at North Wilkesboro. I mean, food only on a Sunday, you got there on Friday. What'd you do? Honest to goodness, that was the weekend of the Apple Festival in North Wilkesboro. Oh, okay. so they did have <laughs> apples in the press box. <laughs> <laughs> Brushy Mountain apples, yep. I ate enough apples that weekend, and I did run up on some friends on Sunday night. The race was rained out, and so I ran up on some friends on Sunday night, and they actually took me out to eat that night at a buffet huh. in Elkin, North Carolina. And I'll never forget that, that they, we better move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't want to see you start sucking your thumb. Okay. <laughs> What's for lunch today? <laughs> <laughs> Steve, here's a detail about Martin's rusty Wallace was running second to Jeff Bodine and he was pitted in the stall right in front of Jeff Bodine and the Bud Moore team. And according to Donnie, 
Rusty was not going to give Jeff and his crew a whole lot of room and kind of short pit. So it would be hard for Jeff to get out of his pit stall. Rusty comes in and he runs over Donnie's foot and breaks a bone in. Ouch. Ooh. That's one thing to have your foot broken during a pit stop. But Donnie finished that race out and then came back the next week at North Wilkesboro and changed tires there with a broken bone in his foot. Now, don't athletes play hurt? Don't tell me that pit crew men are not athletes. I'm not going to buy it. That is absolutely positively hardcore. And it's a, you know, that's the kind of inside NASCAR information that a lot of people might not notice sitting in the grandstands or watching on TV, even in the media center, Steve. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that happens up and down pit road that makes this so intriguing. What's inside of somebody that would make them overcome that kind of hardship? Well, it's the makeup of a pit room. It's the makeup of athletes, period. Well, it's the same thing with a pit crew. Actually, it's the same thing with a driver. How many times have we seen drivers overcome physical injury enough to get in the car and race again as much as they can? It's the same makeup of any athlete. Of all the memorable moments that Donnie mentioned, he had one that really didn't have anything to do with any kind of competition. He said that Bud Moore would come to him in the morning there at the shop and he would say, come on, boy, we're going to go have breakfast. And Donnie would tell him, I've got some work I need to get done. And Bud would tell him it'll be there when you get back. Right. And so he would go to the peach blossom diner with Bud Moore and David Pearson and Cotton Owens. Now that would be the coolest thing in the world to be able to sit down with those three guys and just listen. Oh, can you imagine the stories you would hear? I mean, that'd be terrific. When I went down to Spartanburg for the interview with Bud, when I was doing the spun out and half turned over podcast, we went to lunch at the peach blossom and it was me and it was Bud and it was Cotton Owens and several other people. But I had the same experience, man. I looked over at Bud and not only am I thinking about his NASCAR career, I'm also thinking about D-Day and all the history that he had lived and the battle of the bulge and everything. And then of course, Cotton Owens. And it was one of those just surreal experiences where I couldn't believe that I was sitting there. I can just imagine how you felt, Rick. I kind of equated with being up to junior Johnson's for oh, breakfast. Absolutely. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. They also talked about the practical jokes that they played on each other. <laughs> <laughs> And, and far be it for me to say that somebody should never, ever play a practical joke on somebody at the racetrack, <laughs> but somebody called and convinced Phil that Bud and Donnie's dad had been arrested and needed him to come bail them out. Well, then Harold's hotel got trashed one night <laughs> and then there was some rubber snakes involved and you name it. But then there was a card game going on and Donnie is going head to head with Dell Earnhardt uh -oh. for a pot of over $400. Donnie doesn't have the money to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> he gets Harold to promise he'll help out if he loses. And he winds up beating Dell Earnhardt for the hand. How about that? Yes, sir. <laughs> you beat Dale Earnhardt in anything. That's saying something. Get but some of that earn heart money. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the rubber snakes. I've seen those rubber snakes being used in the garage area time and time again. And it's amazing how some of the crewmen react to that. I mean, they're just totally, totally frightened. Well, I got a hold of a rubber snake one time and I took it to Richmond and I walked into the garage area at Richmond and I saw a bunch of Bud's guys sitting on some tires, almost in a circle, like they were having a conversation or something. So I yelled out, hey, guys. And I threw that rubber snake high in the air towards them. And when that snake landed, they were not there. <laughs> Gone. 
So I went and picked up the snake and I said, you know, I better stop doing this because somebody's liable to stomp me if I <laughs> do that once too often. I know racers good enough to know that that did not go without retribution. So what did they do to you in return? Well, I don't remember them actually doing anything to me, but I did have a lot of retribution (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Well, let's just say that Rick Wilson and Tony Glover are also not fans of snakes. (laughs) Just as a little bit of a preview, they are not fans of snakes either. But Steve, the underlying sentiment behind all of that, what it says to me is that Phil and Donnie and Harold probably think the same way that you and I do about the sport and our own involvement in it. For me, I'm not a car guy. I'm not a mechanic or an engineer. So the mechanics of the sport are absolutely lost on me. I I don't know anything about it. The competition fascinates me, but honestly, it's the people in this sport that I absolutely love and adore. Well, most of them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rick, I agree with you. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not an engineer. I love the competition and I love the people of the sport. The people have such great stories to tell. To me, that is essentially what makes racing. And I'd be willing to bet that the majority of the fans also feel the same way, that they like the people that they are fans of drivers and they want to hear their stories. I think that's exactly the way fans look at racing. And I hope that that's the way that people feel about this podcast. You said that all the people in the garage have a story to tell. Well, we're going to find them. We're trying to get around (laughs) to as many of them as we can. (laughs) That's right. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, this segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. And Steve, the October 24th, 1991 issue of Winston Cup scene, Harry Gant rolled into Rockingham on a little bit of a hot streak. You could say that he was, he had had a pretty good last few weeks. (laughs) Mr. September. (laughs) He had won four straight races in September and then gave up the lead to Dell Earnhardt with just 10 laps to go at North Wilkesboro due to losing his brakes. But he still finished second there. He was fourth at Charlotte. And then here at Rockingham, he held the lead 10 times for a total of 258 laps before coming into the pits for his final pit stop eight seconds ahead of Davey Allison. Now, when second and fourth are disappointments, you're having a pretty good run there. <laughs> I say so. What was a lot of fun about it? Harry had been in the sport for years. He was no spring chicken. I'm thinking he might have been at least 50 years old at this time. Yeah. yeah. So there's old man Harry tearing up the competition in September and for a good part of October. Uh, he came into that final pit stop way ahead of Davey with an air gun broke on the right rear tire and Harry wound up rolling off pit road eight seconds behind Davey and Harry tried his best to catch back up, but still wound up trailing Davey to the checkered flag at Rockingham by a little more than nine tenths of a second. 
Davey said if it hadn't been for those guys on the crew, their enthusiasm and aggressiveness throughout the day, we would, and you wrote this race lead, and would was spelled W-O-L-D. So come on, Steve. <laughs> yeah, like you've never had a typo, huh? <laughs> My middle name was typo. <laughs> <laughs> we would have lost a win. I sure didn't do this by myself. And Davy's shot at the victory was nearly ruined when he attempted to make an earlier stop on lap 376. He damaged the left front bumper of his car when he ran into the back of Derek Cope's car as they rolled onto pit road. And Davy said, Derek was making a pit stop and I didn't know it. He had turned onto pit road in front of me. I had a good run going and I tried to go to the outside of him, but I hit his right rear quarter panel. I came into the pits and the guys pulled away the metal, but it still rubbed the tire. It would snatch the wheel to the left and I had to be careful, except over the last 20 laps when I ran as hard as I could. I'm glad it didn't hurt Derek's car or mine any more than it did, but I gave myself a real good lecture that could have cost us the race. Well, Davey is right when he talks about his pit crew right there. There's an instance where the pit crew works hard to keep the car going. And later on, they took advantage of Harry's miscue in the pit to put Davey out in front. A great big salute to the pit crew there because they made the difference. Harry said, this car is old Alf, but he's had a transplant. <laughs> we put a new front clip on him and weren't sure how well he was going to work, but I guess it worked pretty well. Now we've got two good cars, X1, the one we won all those races with, and now Alf. I'm pleased with second for the first run with this car. Yeah, I guess you would be pretty pleased. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Kyle Petty collected the Unical 76 bonus for winning the race after starting from the pole in the spring of 1990 at Rockingham, and then again in the spring of 1991 for a total of nearly $300,000. And the bonus was back up to $159,600 for this race. And Steve, you know who started from the pole? Oh, yeah. That would be <laughs> Kyle Petty. That's right. <laughs> he started from the pole and led twice for a total of 63 laps, but faded to a ninth place finish one lap down. In this race, in the three before it, Kyle led 1,082 laps of a possible 1,968 laps. Yeah, it was during this time that Kyle owned Rockingham. He always performed well there as the numbers tell us. When Kyle won that first race at Rockingham, he had just agreed to buy a Rolls Royce from team owner Felix Sabatis. And when he won that race, Felix erased the payments and gave Kyle the car. Yeah, he said he was going to do that when he was in the winner's interview at the press box in Rockingham, of course, after the race. Now, I piped up and I said, hey, Felix, if you like my story, will you buy me a Cadillac? <laughs> <laughs> and old Will Parrish from South Carolina spoke up and said, hey, don't worry about it, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no. When Kyle won the spring race in 1991, crew chief Gary Nelson got a Harley Davidson. And Gary's still riding motorcycles to this day. He is all over the place. Absolutely. Now, if Kyle had won this race, Donna Wilson, the wife of head engine builder John Wilson, would have gotten a new Pontiac Grand Prix SE. So Felix was into giving stuff away as bonuses sure. when his team did win. That's right. Not to be outdone, the team received a Kubota riding lawnmower for winning the pole for this race, and they promptly gave Felix the keys. <laughs> 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 now, can you see Felix out on his Kubota lawnmower cutting the grass at his estate? No, I cannot, to be honest with you. <laughs> However, I, I can see him you. paying somebody to do That's it. That's exactly what I was going to say. And let me say something about Felix and this generosity of his. He called me up in my office at scene one day. I declared blue sky and said, I need a favor. And I said, what's, what's up? 
Well, it turned out he had a new yacht company down in Florida. And he had a deadline, a quick deadline about getting a press release out on that yacht ownership of his. And he asked me if I would do it. And I said, sure, I'll help you out. Uh, and about an hour later, I had sent it to him. And he called me back. He said, great, thank you very much. And when I got home that afternoon, a courier came up to the door and handed me a box and said, this is from Mr. Tapatis. And it was an entirely new car phone system, which was something brand new for that day. And I had one for my car. And he told me later on when I thanked him for it, that he said, I don't like to have debts. I want to pay my way. Thank you. That's what he said. That was terrific. It wasn't wireless. It wasn't a cell phone, but it was for that day, pretty fancy. Cindy Karam, who is now Cindy Elliott, Bill's wife, she had a photo of Hoss Ellington in this issue that was pretty cool. Hoss hadn't fielded a car as a team owner since 1988, but he was shown in the photo spread of this issue cooking on this huge monstrosity of a grill that he'd evidently towed to a few races that season. And Steve, when I talk about a monstrosity of a grill, this thing was huge. It had to have <laughs> taken a semi to tow. <laughs> now, were you ever treated to any of Hoss's grill delicacies? Well, I can't say I was, but I was treated to some of the grill delicacies by other drivers and other team owners over the years. No question about it. And one of them, was our good friend Jimmy Spencer at Daytona. He had a grill going with all kinds of food on. And I was asking about it for a television show. And we filmed a brief clip of it. And then after we filmed it, he said, dig in. So I did. I got to tell you, one of my favorite foods in this world, if not my favorite food in this world, is a good old grilled cheeseburger with a big old hunk of fresh sliced tomato and give me a side of grilled mushrooms and a nice ice-cold Diet Pepsi. Oh, yes, that is some good eating right there. Uh, Rick, 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 now, you okay? You want to take him in here? <laughs> okay, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and, Steve, this goes back to what we talked about last week and the loyalty to Bud that his crew had and vice versa. Bud Moore's pit crew won the 1991 Unical 76. Rockingham pit crew competition that weekend. And here are the ages of the crew that day. And basically all of them had been with Bud for quite some time. Harold Stott was 53 and changed the rear tires. Bill Thomas was 50 and he was the gas man. Tire carrier Charles Gibson was 50. Billy Sharp, who was the catch can man, was 43. Left side tire changer Ray Harris was 41. Jackman Danny Fowler was 40. Signboard holder Terry Orr was 34. Donnie Wingo was the baby of the group at 31, and he changed the front tires. And Morgan Shepard, who was the driver at the time, he was 50. And Bud Moore was 66 at the time. So I this was a you. team with let's just say some experience <laughs> and i challenge you to find a team that old in today's racing. i don't oh, think no. you will and as old as that team was they had spent all those years with bud and that underscores their loyalty bill thomas said i'll tell you this i visited russia and i've white water rafted down the colorado river and saved people that capsized in a raft but winning this pit crew championship is the greatest thrill in my life. Donnie said that Bud was emotional about winning the pit crew race, and Harold Stott actually had tears in his eyes as the competition came to an end and the team's win was sealed. Harold said, we deserve this because we've stuck together, and there aren't many people who will give the old guys a chance. I'm 53, and I'm proud of it. I'm not giving up a thing to anybody on pit road. And this proves it. We're all getting up in age. And as far as I know, I'm the oldest guy going over the wall anywhere on pit road. It feels really good to still beat the young guys. I'm still healthy and I'll do it as long as I can. 
I don't feel like 53 is too old. You're as old as you feel. And as long as I can go over the wall, do a good job and not hold the team up, I'll be here. Nobody will have to tell me when it's time for me to stop. I'll know when I can't do it anymore. Well, that underscores, I think, a couple of things that we've mentioned earlier. I think that underscores their athletic ability. And I think that underscores their loyalty to Bud, that these guys have been there for that long and been that old and still win a pit crew championship. No wonder they were so emotional about it. What makes this victory all the more incredible, at least to me, is that according to Donnie and Harold, they rarely, if ever, practice pit stops at the shop. Bud was like, we get practice every week during the race, so why waste time back at the shop? That is amazing. Today, you'll find athletic trainers working on a team specifically to work with the pit crews. There was a very special moment during the pit crew race when Melling Racing and driver Bill Elliott remembered Mike Rich, who had lost his life in an accident on pit road the previous November at Atlanta. The team had won the pit crew race the year before with a time of 24.002 seconds. And when Bill came in for his stop this time, the crew went to work and changed three of the four tires, but left the right rear, the one that Mike was changing when the accident took place, they left it undone. And when the team finished, Bill shut the engine off and everybody there observed 24 seconds of silence in Mike Rich's memory. Yeah, very emotional and moving moment for everyone at the track that day. Tommy Cole, who worked on the Mellon crew, came up with the idea for the event with the help of his wife. Ironically enough, he and Mike had tried out for the crew after Chuck Hill and Dan Elliott were injured in a pit road accident at Riverside in 1987. Tommy said, I'd just gotten into the poultry business and he was in construction and he worked on my farm doing the grading. I felt as close to him as my brother. Now, the pit crew competition was a highlight of every fall race at Rockingham. And as the years went by, you know, it grew in the scope. It went indoors to a coliseum. The rules were changed. It became more complicated and then went away. I think the pit crew competition needs to return. We have talked about pit crewmen being athletes that want to do well. They need to have something to showcase their abilities. They love the competition. They love going up against each other. And I think there has to be some type of program return that offers fans a chance to see them in action. Gary McCready had a story on the first meeting of the old timers racing club and listen to the list of people who were there. Tim flock, Hubert Westmoreland, who owned the car that originally won the first NASCAR strictly stock race at Charlotte in 1949, but was disqualified for illegal springs. Bob Welburn, Larry Frank, Jimmy Lee Wallen, one of NASCAR's 13 original founding fathers, Johnny Allen, Earl Brooks. This was a star studded event. Absolutely. And I know Earl well. He was the first driver, other than Buddy Arrington from Martinsville, that I ever interviewed at a track and he was very very generous with his time and very understanding with my lack of knowledge earl said in this story i never told anybody i retired because i thought i might come back to race again but i just quit because of the big bucks and when i quit i was 50 years old nobody's going to sponsor a 50 year old (laughs) maybe for a sleeping (laughs) contest or something like that but i knew that I didn't get to where I am today by being stupid. So I laid it all aside. I tried to stay away from it because racing is like a fever that gets into your blood. If you go around it, it builds up in you and you want to get back into it. So I thought I'd stay away from it. And I think I've just about cured it this time. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff from Earl there. Larry Frank was declared the winner of the 1962 Southern 500 at Darlington after a scoring foul up, but only after Junior Johnson went to victory lane. And Steve, that was the only win of Larry's Grand National career 
he didn't get to enjoy victory lane, but he still had the racing fever. And Larry said, when you spend 25 years of your life and you just automatically know you're going to run in some kind of car the next week, you just live that way. Then all at once it comes to an end and you don't come back no more. It's hard to find a new way of life and to survive when you're so wound up. There's nothing outside of racing. I don't go to races. I don't go watch them. I've stayed away for 25 years. But one of the biggest things is these guys here today. When I leave here, I sure am going to miss them. And Steve, again, just like you and I talked about earlier, it's the people that makes this sport it. special. That's exactly what Larry said. And let me point out how difficult it was for those guys to retire. You got to remember, these guys are not millionaires. These guys were not guys who walk away from racing and into a life of comfort. They were still trying to make a go of it and working very hard at it. And when the time came to let go, it was not an easy thing to do. Hey, I'm Richard Petty. I'm Kyle Petty. Hey, this is the original Mr. Excitement, Jimmy Spencer. Hey, this is Michael Fatback McSwain. Hey, race fans, this is Shauna Robinson, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, this podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. And listeners, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at rick at com, or you can reach out to Steve at steve at com. And also, as always, I want to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Sound help is provided by Todd Phillips. Video production is by NASCAR Man. And music is provided by Joey Step and Frantic Radio. Yeah, that's what I've always said there, but these young riders, these young riders that come to me, you know, I said, don't, I learned this from Dick Thompson. Nobody gives a damn about tires. Yeah. Most fans don't care. Sometimes you have to write about it because they're part of the story, but they want to hear stories. They want to know these people. They know who won the race. Yeah. Tell them, tell them something about that driver. They don't know. That's what's going to do it for you.